Well, we're continuing our study of Proverbs, and, uh, and by the way, if I have not met you, my name is Brian Haybig. I'm one of the pastors here. That was Jonathan Davis leading us in worship. Uh, we're continuing this summer to study Proverbs. This is from the Old Testament, and it's considered wisdom literature. This is God teaching normal people like us how to navigate life, how to understand the complexities of life, how to live life, as one person has said, skillfully. So we're going to look at quite a few this morning. You can just follow there in the bulletin. Uh, I'm a native Mississippian, although I'm a South Carolinian now, and my wife is also a native Mississippian. And when you grow up in Mississippi, you get so accustomed to being at the bottom of all the good lists and the top of all the bad lists that it's always kind of a nice break when you can stand before people and tell them something good from, from Mississippi. Uh, in fact, when I heard that recently South Carolina was ranked number number 50 in education, I went, what? I thought that was Mississippi. But we'll come back at 50, don't worry. But I want to tell you, you, you may not know this name. About 20 years ago, you might have heard this name, a Mississippian named Osceola McCarty. And I got emotional at the 8.30 service. Uh, Osceola McCarty is, uh, was a single woman from rural Mississippi, and uh, she was born in 1908. And when she was in sixth grade, her aunt lost her only child who was, had been taking care of her, and so Osceola stepped in to begin work in sixth grade to support and care for her family, uh, her aunt. So she left school in sixth grade. And she became what uh, at that time would have been called a washerwoman. So she washed people's clothes and ironed people's clothes. And she, as I said, she never married and she never had children, probably because she became a, a laborer as uh, at the age of maybe 12. Um, she worked her whole life. She st- stopped washing clothes at about the age of 86 when she just physically couldn't do it anymore. She didn't take a newspaper. She thought that was kind of a luxury. She lived an extremely frugal lifestyle. She would push the, uh, push the grocery cart one mile to go get groceries and walk back. Um, when she reached her retirement, the banks that, where she deposited her money, and I don't know exactly how this went, said, you may have more than you think you have because she had lived this very frugal lifestyle and had just saved. And so when they looked at what money she had and these officers at the bank worked with her, she laid out ten dimes, and she said, I want that one to go to Friendship Baptist Church, her church home. I want these three to go to these three family members, and I want these six to go to the University of Southern Mississippi in Hattiesburg, for someone who wants to go and, and they can't afford it. And the president of Southern said he had received larger gifts, but he had never been touched more by another gift. She did not draw any attention to herself about this, but word got out about this. The University of Southern Mississippi awarded her an honorary doctorate, as did Harvard. One year they gave four honorary doctorates. One was to Osceola McCarty, 
from Hattiesburg, Mississippi. The President of the United States presented her with the second highest award that a citizen can receive, private citizen. And um, she was asked to push the button to drop the ball in Times Square. And I think it was when she was in New York to do that that she appeared on Late Night with David Letterman. And I happened to be watching an episode. And Letterman, who no one can be snarkier or more cynical or more flippant. And when she came on, he just absolutely fawned over her. I think he presented her with either one or two dozen roses and just kind of treated her with kid gloves. Uh, why did people respond that way? Because there's certainly been larger gifts. I mean, people give gifts of eight figures, nine figures. And I think it's that people realized she could have, and given her life, we would say should have held on to every penny she could and have a little fun. And she opened her hand. And it reminds me of a, a, a famous passage from the Gospels where Jesus, and remember who he is, this is God. When Jesus says something, that's what God thinks about it. And Jesus and his disciples, they're watching the entrance to the temple, and they're watching people come in and out of the temple, and there was an offering box there, and so people are dropping their coins. And a widow drops two, just really something like two pennies. And Jesus says, do you see that woman? She gave more than anyone else because she gave all she had to live on. And we would, have, you know, we would think, close your hands. At least you have those two pennies. And she opened her hands. And God commended her. These are proverbs about opening your hand. And they're really not so much about what we would call institutional giving. I certainly believe in giving to the church. And we may even touch on that, but the giving that's envisioned in these instructions about wisdom is very relational and very personal, and it's mostly targeted toward those with felt need. So let's look at God's Word. And I'm just going to begin with this first proverb to set the stage, and then we'll read the others as we go. Chapter 11, verse 25. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and one who waters will himself be watered. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Our Father, please help us this morning. We can't fix ourselves, and if our ears are closed, if our eyes are closed, if our hearts are closed, if our accounts are closed, we need you to open them. And we pray that you would and show us who you are. Give us wisdom that we need, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I have to sniffle away from the, <laughs> the mic. Uh, my first summer, my family's first summer here was 2005, and, and I had only been on the job just really not even three months, and Hurricane Katrina hit. And, of course, the whole nation was watching. And, um, and speaking of Mississippi, you know, Katrina 
hit the state of Mississippi, but it affected the surrounding areas. And if you watched and remember it, it dramatically affected the city of New Orleans. And I grew up going to New Orleans. I was there about a month ago with my son. I love New Orleans. And uh, it, it's hot. That is a hot, humid place. The city is below sea level, so it's very humid. And after Katrina, it was surrounded by water and sunny skies, which made it even worse. And if you, if you were alive during that time or watched it, you, you, you saw these shots. One that just showed over and over on the news was people up on an overpass stranded because the, the, the road came down into to flood water. So they're up on this overpass, and there's no shelter, and there's no food, and there's no water. And so, of course, <clears throat> the country's watching this, and you feel like, D- somebody do something. I, you know, th- there's water to take there. I'll donate it. There's food to drop there. There are makeshift shelters. You could get there maybe by a helicopter or something. There's, there's uh, people with babies. They don't have any diapers. Like, do something. And that's a maddening thing to watch when you're looking where there's desperate need. You know the resources are out there, and something's shutting down getting the resources where it's needed. Now, that, and that's always going on all over the world. That has led people for centuries to think about, all right, so what do we do about that? How do you get the resources that are out there, you know, the wealth that this earth affords to the places where it needs to go? And it's led to philosophies. It's led to understandings of economics, you know. And for some people it looks like, well, then you do socialism. Or for some people it's you do capitalism or you do another model. And here's the thing. Every model touches on something that's true, but when you look at what wisdom has to say about how we get what's needed, where it's needed, no one model catches everything. So this morning, I'm not, I'm not coming to you promoting capitalism or socialism or any other ism. What I'm trying to highlight is God teaching us about opening our hands, our hands, with what we have for the needs that exist all around us and in this world. So let's, we're looking at generosity. Let me look at it this way. First off, the power of generosity. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that, but I just want us to see some, the way generosity is presented powerfully. The power of generosity, barriers to generosity, and then the root of generosity. So first off, the power The way Proverbs depicts generosity is that it actually affects the world around you. That that it actually affects the way people respond to you. Now, here's two examples. One is, it opens doors. It opens doors that normally would have been closed to you. Look at the next two Proverbs, the second and the third one. A man's gift makes room for him and brings him before the great. A gift in secret averts anger, and a concealed bribe, strong wrath. Now, do you know the comedian Jim Gaffigan? Jim Gaffigan, very funny. He, he, he does his material in his normal voice, and then he'll keep going, to, reverting to this second voice he has, and it's like this kind of wispy, 
hypersensitive person who's like offended by the joke he just told. And so when Jim Gaffigan's telling you a joke, he'll say the joke and then this voice will say, I'm really offended that he said that. I can almost hear that, that kind of hypersensitive Jim Gaffigan voice when you read these things because you can almost hear this voice saying, I don't think bribes are a good thing. And the, and the, the interesting thing about the wisdom literature is it says, look, this is how life actually works. It's not commending bribery, but it's saying generosity is so powerful. And unfortunately, you know, like when you're a have, you can, you can use this. If you're a have not, you're, you get the shaft. But whether it's for good or for ill, gifts and money and giving can open doors, whether that's justice or opportunity or getting in front of somebody. That's how it works. It opens doors. Um, And also, it fuels wealth. Again, this is how Proverbs comes to us. It's not embarrassed by it. Generosity fuels wealth. Next proverb from chapter 3. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. And the honoring would be giving. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. And then look at the the first part of this next proverb. One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. And of course, mathematically, that shouldn't work. The way it should work is the more you give out, then the less you have. It says, no. The more you give out, the more you have. It fuels wealth. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that, but just those two things should tell you wisdom is saying that when you're generous, it's not just like, yeah, that's a good quality. It affects the dynamics around you. It affects people in your life. Uh, And I want to say this. I'm going to circle back to this, but the giving that's envisioned in Proverbs is not so much institutional giving. I mean, the irony is that these Proverbs were mostly compiled by Solomon, and he's the guy that built the temple. He's the guy that knew uh, up close and personal, this thing needs financing. And, but the giving that he envisions is very personal. It's that person and that person and that person that I know. So it's powerful. What are the barriers to it? If it's so great, what are the barriers? Um, let, let, let me start out by sharing this. And I'm going to qualify this, that I, this is not a Brian Habig endorsement of everything this person says or a DPC endorsement, and I'm not trying to push a, a guru on you. But somebody in our time that writes a lot about money and talks a lot about money and people quote a lot is Dave Ramsey. He's based in Nashville and uh, talks a lot about personal finance and all that and before we lived in Greenville, we lived in Nashville, and on my commute home in Nashville, he used to be on the radio, so I used to listen to him uh, a lot, and, and you know, kind of heard the main things that he says over and over, and more than once I've heard him say this, and so I just want you to think about this. He said, look, I can't prove this. This is anecdotal, but Dave Ramsey says, uh, it's my experience that when people save and plan and give, it keeps Murphy away. Now, do you know what he means by keeps Murphy away? He's talking about Murphy's law. If something can go wrong, it will go wrong. He said, for some reason, when people make provision, Murphy kind of stays at bay. And when people don't save, and they don't plan, and they're not intentional, and they don't give, Murphy's just all over the place. And that sounds like Proverbs to me. 
Again, that's anecdotal. And I'm, not, I'm not saying, and that proves the Bible is true. I'm saying it corroborates, you know, what the, the Proverbs have been saying for 3,000 years. And it gets at some of these barriers. What, what are some of the barriers? One might be uh, like the person who doesn't save and they don't plan and they're not generous and they're always playing catch-up is perception. And what I mean is perception of what do I have and if I give more, uh, what's going to be my condition? Go back to 11.24, that let's see, fifth one down. One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. And look at the, the, the next part. All day long the sluggard craves and craves, but the righteous gives and does not hold back. And the sluggard, that's a lazy person. It doesn't say the sluggard doesn't have. The sluggard might have quite a bit. This might be a lazy person who had a generous parent or grandparent. But he wants more. And so as he wants more and sees what he doesn't have, what does that shut down? Generosity. Or if you perceive, man, this is hand to mouth. If I give anything, I'm just not going to be able to catch up. What is that going to shut down? Generosity. So self-perception. Second, uh, what I'm going to call security blanket. That what you have is a security blanket. Look at the next two. 11.28. Whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. And then 18.11. A rich man's wealth is his strong city and like a high wall in his imagination. Now, this affects all kinds of people, but this might particularly be true for somebody who didn't have means, didn't come from much, amasses some wealth, and now feels like there's a wall, a protective wall. Uh, Let me tell this story and see if I can make this make sense. A man that I know uh, who used to go sailing with friends, like on at least an annual basis, in the British Virgin Islands, he, uh, he, he told about taking a peer of his, an older man, with him. And, and this is a guy from small town Mississippi, and this man had made a good bit of money. And so one night they went to dinner, and before they went to dinner, this man had, um, he had pre-gamed a little bit. So he was feeling generous, and so he said at the dinner table, all right, I don't know, half a dozen people or eight people, he said, all right, everybody, get what you want because dinner's on me tonight. And this, this mutual friend said, you know, teasing him, said, you don't have enough money to buy us all dinner. And this guy said, I got enough money to burn a wet mule. <laughs> have you ever heard that expression? I've never tried it, but I would think that's a massive amount of money <laughs> to burn a wet mule. Uh, I got enough money, I ain't got to worry about nothing. I don't think any of us will ever say this out loud. But if we really spoke the truth from our hearts, at least most of us would probably say, God, I know that you can be trusted, and I think it's good for you to be trusted, but I want enough money where I don't have to. And the irony is that the Bible commends Saving, planning, intentionality, productivity. 
it says things, in case you think I am going socialist on you, it says things like, uh, a righteous man leaves an inheritance for his children's children. But there's such a thing as looking to money like it's a wall between you and a frightening world. I mean, this won't click with some of you because you're, you're starting out, but for some of you, do you sometimes look up your retirement account or some other account when you need a dopamine hit? That you feel off or you feel discouraged or, or, or something just made you feel weird and you want to feel okay again? Do you ever look at your money? Because that's not good for your soul. That, that wall is in your imagination. Money's not a good security blanket. And if it is, that's going to shut down generosity, except the like very limited, safe generosity that you get credit for. Uh, the third barrier, I'm just going to mention this in passing because I feel like we need to acknowledge this. Look at the third from the last. It's 1323. The fallow ground of the poor would yield much food, but it is swept away through injustice. This is really interesting that this is in the, the wisdom literature because Proverbs, again, it acknowledges there is such a thing as laziness, you know, and there is such a thing as the foolish use of money. There is such a thing as not planning and being intentional. Yes, yes, yes. So, all over the world, you will find people who don't have enough because they did not work, they did not save, uh, they were foolish with the money they did have. That is all over the world, always has been all over the world. And yet, it is also the case that you can have people who are willing to work hard and want to work hard, and they want to do that saving and, be, and planning and being intentional, but because of injustice, they can't build wealth. Why is it important to know that? Because if in our minds we have this just direct cause and effect, if you're poor, it's because you didn't work and you weren't, uh, you weren't diligent. If you do have enough, it's because you worked, and you were diligent, that will just shut generosity down, except to, like, institutions that you like. Listen to this. This is, a, this is from a Christian from another time. And uh, he, was, he was pastoring in a, an urban context, lots of poverty. And he was preaching one Sunday on the text, it is more blessed to give than to receive. That's what Jesus said. It is more blessed to give than to receive. So he says this. Some of you pray night and day to be made branches of the true vine. You pray to be made all over in the image of Christ. If so, you must be like him in giving. Though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor. Now then, this is really good preaching. He anticipates the objections of the listeners. So he says... And, and he says the objections. Objection number one, my money is my own. Answer, Christ might have said my blood is my own. My life is my own. No man forceth it from me. Then where should we have been? Objection two, the poor are undeserving. Answer, Christ might have said the same thing. 
They are wicked rebels against my father's law. Shall I lay down my life for thieves? I will give to the good angels. But no, he gave his blood for the undeserving. Objection number three. The poor may abuse it. And I do think that is the most compelling one. It'll be misused. The poor may abuse it. Answer, Christ might have said the same, yea, with far greater truth. Christ knew that thousands would trample his blood under their feet, that most would despise it, that many would make it an excuse for sinning more. Yet he gave his own blood. My dear Christians, if you would be like Christ, give much, give often, give freely to the vile and the poor, the thankless and the undeserving. Christ is glorious and happy, and so will you be. It is not your money I want, but your happiness. And you see what he's doing there. He's doing something like the apostles do. When the apostles want you to change, what they'll often do is they'll tell you the gospel again in the context of the application. So instead of saying, hey, husbands, take it up a notch, which would be true, the apostle will say, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He's telling you the gospel again through that application. And there's a place where the apostle Paul says, He's talking about giving. And man, he could turn the knife. And he could have given the guilt trip. And what does he say? You remember the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, he became poor. That you, through his poverty, might be made rich. What is the root of generosity? Real generosity is the gospel. That when God saw that I could not cleanse myself and I could not change myself and I could not obey my way out of this dilemma because I could never repay my debt and he had to be just and sin had to be punished. That God so loved the world that he gave. That he gave his son. And when his son comes, Jesus does not tithe himself. But he gives himself away so that we'll be beloved, so that we'll be clean, so that we'll be the bride. And until that goes deep down in our hearts, the way we'll give will either be safe or just not give. But that's the root of real generosity. Uh, So, how do you put feet to this? I'm just going to mention a few things and come in for a landing. The first would be this, is if we're going to put feet to this, let's front load generosity. And what I mean by that is, rather than for the rest of our lives playing catch-up, where as soon as money comes in, I buy stuff I want, and I pay some bills, and then I sort of, you know, I'm just kind of playing pickup ball the rest of the month, and then at the end I see what I can give. 
rather than to front load it and say, if I'm going to be wise, this has to be like my mortgage. This has to be like utilities. I must be open-handed. And not just I must, I get to be open-handed. Honor the Lord with the first fruits of my wealth. And I'm not going to, I don't have the expertise to tell you how to do that. I'm not going to engage in it. And so here's how you set up an online savings account and you do, a, you know, automated payments. Y- y'all do that. But front load it. Second thing is this, to remember that need has a face. Need is not faceless. And what I mean is typically our giving is institutional and that's important. We need to give to schools and nonprofits and the church and on and on and on. But let's say you send $500 to a university that gets giant gifts all the time. That's part of the big picture. It is part of the big picture and it's a worthwhile endeavor, but it's that. But when you take $500 and let's say the single mom that you know whose back is to the wall and she has a crummy car and you buy new tires for her car with $500, she feels the love of Christ. She feels like God cares about her. And he does, but she feels it. And those people are all around us. Those people are in our lives if we will look. You may know exactly right now where that person is, or maybe just this week, you need to look. The third thing is this, is um, that we need to pray for our deacons. And I'm glad any time anybody at DPC is praying for anybody else in DPC. I'm glad any time we're praying, period. But... When, uh, when you pray for the pastors, we need it, we thank you, don't stop, pray more. Same for the elders, thank you, need it, keep praying. We need to pray for our deacons. Our deacons are tasked with receiving your gifts and aiming them. And sometimes it is things like Paying off the building and the lights in the building and toilets and, and whatever. Yeah, that's part of real life. But the real meat and potatoes of the work of the deacons are those in need. And that takes wisdom. So pray for our deacons and give them money to give away. Uh, let me end with this. And I'm just going to give this disclaimer that I think that the end of this sermon kind of trends toward corniness. So I'm just going to say that, preemptively. And yet I'm going to keep going, and then we'll be done. Uh, did you see the 80s movie, Dead Poet Society? Have you seen that, Robin, one of Robin Williams' well-known movies? You know, there's this scene where Robin Williams, he takes these students, these young charges, out into the hallway of this historic boys' school, and there's something like a display case that has trophies, and, but it has these old grainy black-and-white photos in the display case, And he says, I want you to look in their faces. I want you to look into their faces. So you see these, like, high school guys just getting down. And, of course, you know, it's pictures of men who are dead. And he says, they're gone. You know, they're worm food. And I want you to hear them saying, carpe diem, you know, seize the day while you... It's really a a powerful picture of 
Look in those faces and think, what would they say to you if they could talk to you from the grave? I'm going to make an ask of you. You don't have to do this, but this is an ask. Don't do it right now. But before today is out, look up Osceola McCarty on Wikipedia. And the reason is, I want you to see the photo that's posted of her. Because I looked her up to fact check what I was telling you. And the photo of Osceola McCarty is of an elderly uh, African-American hard-working woman, working woman's hands. And these working woman hands are holding this big book, and it says, Holy Bible. And she's looking at you, and she's smiling. Like a sweet smile. Not a, not a bitter smile, a sweet smile. And at the risk of sounding corny, I want you to hear her saying to us, don't try to wait till you get all your ducks in a row before you open your hand. This book says he's going to take care of us. Now open your hand. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you as the great giver of your precious, one-of-a-kind Son. We praise you, Lord Jesus, Savior, that you gave your life as a fragrant offering for we who don't deserve it. And now, Lord, work in our hearts and open our hearts Give us yourself first. Open our hands. Open our hands with wisdom. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.